kind of, uh, my, my name is not Neil Davidson this morning. I just want you to know that. Um, it's a little bit unusual for me to be in the pulpit, <clears throat> but it is an honor and a privilege to bring the message from God's word this morning. Um, pastor asked me a few weeks ago, I thought his sermon series um, on the book of Proverbs was absolutely uh, a phenomenal sermon series. But two weeks ago on Sunday, right before church, he asked me to preach in August. So I have no idea what he preached on that Sunday. Um, he kind of uh, set me a surprise. So I just want to give you a word of advice about responding to Pastor Neil when he asks you to help out or minister in some way. Always take option one. Option one for me was reteaching a series I, I taught in Sunday school on the 12 minor prophets. I was asked to preach that, uh, to teach that this summer here at Hope. And I, I thought rather politely declined. Oh boy, here I am now at option two. He really knows how to up the ante. And I could talk about him because he's not here. He'll be back by the end of the service, but he heard most of this the first time around. It's really strange preaching a sermon twice. I, I will just tell you, I, I've never had this opportunity. It's probably not going to get any better the second time around, but the good news is none of you heard it the first time around except the poor worship team and my lovely wife. Um, you know, this technology, uh, this headset, hands-free stuff for Italians, this is just great. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, I did ask them to, to get rid of that little clear table because I was afraid I might be nervous enough to fall down. I wanted something to hold on to. But, but being able to just, you know, use your hands, this is great. And Pastor Neil, he also thrives in this setup. Um, he loves to talk with his hands. I don't think he's Italian, but he loves also to roam back and forth. I mean, I'm always amazed um, that he can even keep his, his concentration when he does that. Um, he's quite a gifted communicator. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but, but Cheryl and I have both noticed that he looks right at you and makes eye contact when he's preaching. I'm going to tell you, that's not an easy thing to do. That's quite a difficult thing to do. It, it really throws you off, especially if the person looks right back at you. And even more than that, do you ever notice how he looks, it always seems at least that he looks right at me, right at the point in the sermon that I need to hear the most. I mean, it's really quite unnerving. And Technically speaking, when he does that, he has stopped preaching and he has started meddling. <laughs> but that's another subject for another time. Uh, in spite of this wonderful uh, headset technology and freedom, I'm, I'm going to stick rather close to my notes. Um, Steve asked me how many pages, and I told him 30, but that wasn't really the truth. Um, some of you who have been in my adult Sunday school classes know that I can ramble sometimes, or many times. Okay, almost all the time. But this morning, I'm going to try hard to be direct and concise. 
The passage I've chosen for our consideration this morning is likewise very brief and concise. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you want to uh, turn in your Bibles, I think it's page 961 in the Holman Bible. I'm going to read the New American Standard Version, but they're, they're almost identical. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirteen simple and straightforward words. Ever ask yourself or wondered how ministers choose what to preach on? Let me share with you how I decided on this passage. As of this morning, Cheryl and I have been married for three months. Wow, they they didn't clap in the first service. Almost always, we start our day with a walk from our house up to Sholin Farms and back, and then while she gets ready for work, I make breakfast. Now, all of the guys have just tuned me out because they're saying, dude, you are making us look really bad. But that's not my point. While we eat together, we read a psalm. We read the daily chapter from Proverbs, as pastor's been encouraging us to do, and we read a chapter either from the book of Romans or the Gospel of John, as she and I will be teaching through those books this coming year in our Sunday seminar series. And we've been through Romans twice now, I think, and the first time we came to chapter 8, Cheryl told me that it was her favorite chapter in the Bible. Pastor asks me to preach. Bang. Romans chapter 8. I'm guaranteed to make at least one person happy this morning. I'm not a fool. Happy wife, happy life. I entitled this message, The Bad News and the Good News. I've been teaching in the adult education ministry here at Hope for quite a number of years. And other than the three sermons I preached this past Easter at Apple Valley Baptist Church, by the way, that was option one from the pastor. I shuddered to think what option two might have been. Other than those three sermons, I haven't preached regularly in a very long time. In the New Testament, preaching, the Greek word euangelizomai, which essentially means proclaiming, and the noun form of the word euangelion are the words we get our English words evangelism and the gospel. Preaching is the proclamation of the gospel or the good news. I threw in those Greek words so you would think that I was really smart. Actually, they're about the only Greek words that I can always remember, so I try to work them in whenever I can. I'm really happy, though, that they seem to work well with my sermon title, Bad News, Good News. And while a casual glance might make you think that I only have it half right, let me explain my thinking. The good news of this passage, that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, only has its full impact when we understand how bad the bad news is. If we are not in Christ, we sit under the full condemnation, judgment, and wrath of an omnipotent, holy, and just God. Once we understand how bad it can be, I'm hoping that we'll gain a fuller appreciation and understand better the implications of the good news. So, fasten your seatbelts. 
bear with me. It's going to be a rough ride at first, but hang in there. We'll get to the good stuff by the end. It's natural, but unfortunate, that most people don't like to hear about bad news. We've all heard the one-liners, the really bad news is there's no good news, or the joke about the doctor calling his patient with bad news and worse news. When he asks what the bad, bad news is, the doctor tells him that he only has 24 hours to live. And when he says, well, what could the worst news possibly be? The doctor says, I've been trying to reach you since yesterday. <laughs> the truth is, we don't like to hear about bad stuff. I rarely read or watch the news. And if you're one of those people like me, it's kind of really unfortunate for you this morning because it's probably a little bit too late to leave. But as I said, I want to talk about it so we can put the good news in its best and truest perspective so that we can see how good and how far-reaching and how transforming the good news really is. Because of my personal interest in apologetics and evangelism, and if you've been in my Sunday school classes, you know that you know, sometimes I'm like a man possessed about those things, I tend to view most passages of Scripture with that kind of bias. And I firmly believe that if we leave here today with a biblically accurate view of the bad news and the good news of Romans 8.1, we will be more compelling in our defense of the faith, which is apologetics, and we will be more compelled to share the gospel, which is evangelism. Last week, Pastor eloquently shared with us one of the most compelling reasons to live wisely, that we are to be lights. We are to be lights to show the way for the unbeliever how to move from darkness into light. When he, gave that, uh, when he gave that part of his message, I was reminded of Alistair Begg's comment on the very same idea in his series on evangelism when he reminds us that we are indeed lights, but we should remember to shine the light on the path and not in their eyes. I hope this morning as we unpack this bad news, the darkness, and good news, the light, we will be able to see the basis and the substance of that call to live in such a way that we can be the light. Romans 8.1 begins with the word therefore. And I'm sure you've all heard the old adage, whenever you see the word therefore, you better ask yourself, what is it therefore? It's perhaps best explained by the English phrase, on the basis of this. So Paul starts this chapter. He says, On the basis of something, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we should naturally ask ourselves, okay, on the basis of what? Sometimes the chapter breaks in our modern Bibles are not helpful. They're not inspired, by the way. Um, the immediate reference to the therefore in Romans chapter 8 is the personal struggle Paul was describing in Romans chapter 7. 
the war between his two inner natures. If you're not familiar with that passage, I I hope you'd spend some time this week or today or this afternoon sometime and, and read through it. It was a struggle for Paul. It's a struggle for all of us. We deal with it every single day of our lives, the struggle between our two natures. And Paul, at times, was exasperated by it. And in verse 24 of chapter 7, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this death? And immediately, the answer comes in verse 25, that it is only through Jesus Christ. So the sense of Romans 8 is some, 8.1 is something like this. On the basis of the person and work of Christ, there is now no condemnation. John Piper suggests that maybe it isn't just those verses in chapter 7 that's in view, but maybe everything that Paul has written in the book of Romans, the whole first seven chapters, all are the basis of the therefore of chapter 8, verse 1. I think we could go further. We could go further and say that Romans, the, the therefore in Romans 8.1 is the hinge pin of all of human history. Everything that has happened since the fall of man up till now is the therefore of Romans 8.1. There's another little word at the beginning of this passage. It's the word now. But let me save that for our discussion about the good news. But let me just say this. If there is now no condemnation, we could easily conclude that up until now, there was condemnation. And here is the heart of the bad news. How bad is it? It's really bad. We are, outside of Christ, condemned people. What might make us feel a bit better about this is that we're not alone. Misery loves company. We are all condemned. I think the misery loves company is a bit of false hope, however. I don't think that the Jews who were herded into the gas chambers took any comfort in that they were all going to die And we shouldn't take any great comfort in the fact that we are all condemned either. We are, according to the scripture, condemned on two counts. Genetically and personally. When Adam and Eve fell from innocence in the garden, their very nature changed. Their essence, souls if you will, became infected with sin. In just a single moment, they had a complete status change from innocent to guilty. The scripture also tells us in several places that as the figurehead of the whole human race, Adam passed on his sinful nature to all of us. I referred to this a moment ago as the genetic condemnation. I don't mean genetic in terms of our DNA, but more in terms of our inherited nature. We inherit from our parents 
and they from their parents, and they from their parents, all the way back to Adam, we inherit a corrupt nature. And it wasn't just humanity that was corrupted by the fall in the garden. The scripture tells us that all creation was affected and infected with sin. Look at verses 20 through 22 in this chapter. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, in addition to inheriting a sinful nature, which by itself would lead to our condemnation, we all actually participate in sin. And most of us, on a quite regular basis, in thoughts, in words, and in deeds, we daily live out that inherited sin nature. The news just keeps getting worse and worse. And the Bible is clear. Paul has written earlier in this book of Romans that all have sinned and that makes us fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. This is a pretty bleak picture. Sick with an inherited sin nature. Sick with an active sin nature and on both counts rightly condemned by a holy God. Now it gets even worse. Here's the problem. We don't really believe it. We, and I truly mean me as well as many of you, have a rather weak view of what it means to be sinful and an equally weak view of God's perfections. We often, especially before we put our faith in Christ, view our sinfulness in relative terms. I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as I could be. And I'm definitely not as bad as so-and-so. I'm a decent person. I try my best. What kind of a God would not accept the fact that I try my best? Unfortunately, that kind of thinking often goes on inside the church as well as on the outside. It betrays a type of thinking that thinks too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of God. And while it is true that from some points of view, there is a difference between you and me and the Sharnoff brothers, from the point of view of perfection, which is what God demands of each person, there's no difference. Imagine for a moment, with respect to the required perfection, required perfection to enter God's kingdom or family, there is no difference between me and those two murderers or any other heinous person from history you want to pick. That is a pretty sobering thought. That is really bad news. God is light and God is perfection and holiness 
and righteous and just and thoroughly and perfectly so. He declares us guilty and prepares to pour out his wrath upon us. Without Christ, the Bible describes us as God's enemies. When you have time, read through David's description of what happens to God's enemies in the last half of Psalm 21. It's disturbing. Here's a thought that might help us get, a, get on track about what it is that God actually demands of us. Think of the best person you know. Think of all of their fine attributes, their good qualities, the integrity of their character. Two people came to my mind as I was thinking about this this past week. One is my dad. At 94, he's the kindest, sweetest, most generous, loving, wise, godly man I have ever known. The other is Cheryl, my wife. I told her so many times while we were dating that she was way too good for me. What makes it even more humorous is that I meant it, and it's true. I've never met anyone like her. I know that you just think this is the newlywed in me talking, but I want you to know I have really never met anyone in my life who is so good to the core. It's almost embarrassing to be around her. She is so good. Now, I take these two people that I admire with their piles and piles of goodnesses, and then I look at what the scripture says about them, that without Christ, they are, are wretched sinners and their righteousness is like filthy rags to God with respect to satisfying his holy requirements. We cannot meet his standard. We come empty-handed. Our best effort does not and cannot do anything to commend us to God. One of the reasons that I cherish some of the old hymns, because I think that there is a richness in the lyrics that we sometimes miss. They are full of rich truth and good theology. Listen to this, the words of this hymn by Philip Bliss from 1875. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless, ruined, condemned. When's the last time that you and I thought of ourselves that way? Condemned and rightly so, 
by inheritance and participation in sinfulness. The picture that Paul paints in Romans chapter 8 is the picture, is a legal picture. It's the picture of the court of God's law in which we are judged, found guilty, condemned, and sentenced. And the sentence is death. Actually, the sentence is a double death. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, meaning God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the bad news. And I told you it was really bad. We are, apart from Christ, the walking dead. And I don't mean the zombies on the television show. Are we having fun yet? Now the good news. That those who are in Christ are not condemned. And it gets even better. Not only are we not condemned, but we are declared not even guilty. It gets better. Not only are we declared not condemned and not guilty, we are, if we are in Christ, declared to be righteous. The good news is the exact opposite of the bad news. Christ comes and stands in our place. He not only takes our sin upon himself. Do you remember the words of scripture that say it was our sins that nailed him to the tree? And he not only takes our sin upon himself, he takes the judgment for our sin. And he accepts the sentence and the punishment for us as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Jesus' prayer about the cup passing from him? What was that cup? I think it's pretty clear that it was the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath that was to be poured out against our sin, but poured on him. The cup didn't pass from him. He drank it. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Not only does he do that, but the scripture tells us he empties out our sinfulness and fills us with his righteousness. So let me ask the question another way. Does it get any better than that? It was a rhetorical question, but the obvious answer is no. But wait, there's still more. In addition, Paul tells us a few verses later in this chapter that because we're no longer condemned, we are then adopted into God's family. He makes us his family. He loves us. Even more good news at the end of the chapter. That he sets a seal upon us and tells us that by his omnipotent power, nothing, absolutely nothing, 
will ever be able to separate us from his love. It doesn't get any better than that. Let me pause here, though, to remind you that there's a qualifying phrase in this passage. The good news only applies to a certain group of people. Not everyone. Those who are in Christ. I don't know your heart this morning. It's very probable that in a group this size, there are some who are not in Christ, who don't really know what that means. It may be that you are here this morning and you're not in Christ because you don't want to be. It might be that you are not in Christ this morning because you don't know how to be. Or maybe you just never knew it mattered. Whichever the case may be, if you are one of those type of people, I'm really glad that you're here. But I will tell you, and I mean this sincerely, you are in trouble. You may have not known before that there were such dire consequences to not being in Christ but you know now you have no excuse there are many people here myself included that would be happy to show you how you can be in Christ please consider this carefully and do something about it today none of us are guaranteed tomorrow For those of you who consider yourselves to be in Christ with all of the benefits of this good news that I described, let me ask you a question. What difference does it make? Now I'm meddling. Let me illustrate it this way. What would your life look like if if tomorrow you woke up and found out that you had been found guilty of a capital crime and had been sentenced to death. You've been scheduled for execution, and you had your last meal. And just as you were about to have the needle placed in your arm, someone stepped in and took your place. From that moment on in your life, what is it likely to be the first thing that you tell anyone about your life? Who would you call? What would you say to your neighbors or probably to absolutely anyone who ever asked you how you were doing? You would, I think, most likely tell them the miraculous story of what had happened. Do you get the point? There are many other practical implications of this good news, and I want to share a few. Before I do, however, I want to share one insight that came to me as I was thinking of this passage. There is a world of difference between condemnation and conviction. While there is no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ, the fact of the matter is we do still sin. And when we do, 
God is at work in us by the Holy Spirit to convict us of that sin. Not with a view towards judgment, but with a view towards holiness and spiritual growth. Conviction, as uncomfortable as it feels, is for our good. It is described in Scripture as the love of a father who disciplines his children. God is not surprised or alarmed by your sin. He doesn't get mad at us. He loves us deeply. And as we learned a few moments ago, nothing, an unqualified nothing, can separate us from that love. Unlike earthly fathers, who are not always perfect, God always knows the best way to help us. And that help often comes by the conviction that we're headed in the wrong direction. Don't confuse condemnation with conviction. So what are the benefits then, some of the benefits that can come to us as we live out this no condemnation status in our lives. What does it affect? Well, the thing, first thing I think it affects is our joy. Do you lack joy this morning? Think about what God has done for you, and it will bring joy to your life. It may not bring happiness, because happiness is temporal and related to circumstances, but joy goes beyond that. But some very specific practical applications to believing that we are no longer under condemnation. What about in the area of physical pain? When you suffer physical pain, and it lasts a long time, and seems to get worse instead of better, and it even seems that it may end in death and not healing, the accuser, and by the way, that's what was going on in chapter 7, Paul was dealing with the accuser, and sometimes that accuser is our own thoughts. Sometimes it's the evil one himself. Sometimes that accuser is well-meaning friends like Job had. Comes, they come to us and say, it's punishment. You are under God's condemnation. That's why you are suffering so much. How are we going to, how are we going to survive that kind of assault? When we're in physical pain. The answer? Romans 8.1. No. I'm not under condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I trust Christ. My righteousness and my pardon. My sins are covered. I will not come into condemnation. I have passed from death to life. John 5.24. Be gone, tempter. And O Christ... Let your power be perfected in my pain. There's no condemnation in marriage difficulties. Suppose you came here this morning and you're feeling deeply disappointed or even deeply wronged in your marriage. Where will you find the moral power to forgive and keep on loving and wooing and hoping and not resort to returning evil for evil and condemning? The answer, Romans 8.1. You will remind yourself again and again 
that even though you are a sinner, in Christ Jesus, God does not condemn you, and your future is free for everlasting joy. And it is from that reservoir of mercy and hope that you will draw up buckets of mercy for your spouse. And God will work wonders of grace in your life. No condemnation in the failures of parenting. What are you going to do if your children break your heart? We will find ample reasons for thinking it was our fault, and you'll never really be able to sort that out, ever. Only God can. So how will you keep on going? How will you keep loving? The answer, Romans 8.1. In the end, you don't have to sort that out. Your standing with God does not hang on your figuring out how much was your fault and how much was someone else's fault. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With that freedom, you will admit your failings. You'll admit them freely. And you will humble yourselves, perhaps before your children. And maybe God will heal. There is... Now, therefore, no condemnation in anything. On and on we could go. No condemnation and ministry. No condemnation and peer pressure. No condemnation and sexual temptation. No condemnation and pride. No condemnation and racism. Oh, how little does racial bigotry and prejudice and discrimination know of this truth. And on and on, the practical implications of this glorious truth are endless. So where are you? Has the world shaped your mind so that you don't even think about your need to escape God's condemnation? Do you just think about how religion might be practically useful? Most important, are you in Christ by faith? Or are you outside? Don't stay outside. There's always room in Christ. Come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Our hearts are not big enough express our gratitude to you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. I pray this morning that if there are folk here who are not in Christ or are not sure, that they would see your offer, that they would sense your call, that they would settle the matter. And for those who are in Christ, I pray this morning that you would help us to live in the kind of freedom that that brings. Freedom to be the people that you have called us to be. Freedom to live without guilt and shame and fear. 
freedom to silence the accuser when he attempts to make us ineffective. Most of all, freedom to love and honor you. We'll give you thanks for this. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.